I'm standing outside the Lloyd Street Synagogue in the historic Jonestown neighborhood of Baltimore. Here at 11 Lloyd Street is the third oldest synagogue building in the U.S., the first ever to be built in Maryland. Over the course of its life, it served the spiritual needs of German Jews, Lithuanian Catholics, and Orthodox Russian Jews from Eastern Europe. This building holds so many stories, told and untold. And in many ways, it tells the story of Baltimore, a city shaped by its role as one of the largest ports of entry for immigration into the U.S. in the 19th and early 20th centuries. As different people arrived in Baltimore, they established houses of worship, often moving into the sanctuaries and synagogues whose previous congregations had advanced enough economically to move into nicer neighborhoods. Today, the synagogue is a portal to the past, an important part of the Jewish Museum of Maryland, an institution dedicated to finding, protecting, and sharing the stories of Maryland's Jewish communities. In this episode, a talented storyteller is going to take us on a journey through the history of the synagogue's many congregations and introduce us to nearby East Lombard Street and its history as a bustling market in the heart of a Jewish neighborhood. Finally, we'll hear the story of one of the most famous Jewish entertainers who no one knew was Jewish, Harry Houdini. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, a consultant specializing in podcasting for museums and cultural nonprofits. And this is a show for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. Museums are the keepers of our history and culture, but they are also reflections of who we are now. I'm currently exploring the museums of Maryland, my home state, to discover how they reflect and shape this state's unique identity. This episode is sponsored by Grove History Consulting. Jewish community came to Baltimore in the 1700s. This is Marvin Pinkert, director of the Jewish Museum of Maryland. However, they didn't have a permanent home. There were many reasons for this, one of which was that the Constitution of the state of Maryland said that you could not hold office or sign a contract or be a witness at a trial if you were Jewish because you had to sign a Christian oath. Until 1826, when the document with the unfortunate name, the Maryland Jew Bill, gets signed, its intent was good. Uh, the intent was to nullify that provision of the Constitution. And with that, they could now apply for this organization, the, what was initially called Nidche Yisrael, the Scattered of Israel. They were determined to build their first home, and in 1827, they start on that pathway. It takes them until 1845 to raise the money, $20,000 to build the building, and actually create this structure. In the meantime, they go out and hire a rabbi, the first ordained rabbi in America, Rabbi Rice. Rabbi Rice is 
hunting around for a congregation in the United States, and he's in Newport, Rhode Island. You saw those metal gates outside. The man who made those gates went to Newport to try to persuade Rabbi Rice that he'd be far better off in Baltimore than in Newport. And he was persuasive. Newport didn't look like it had a big future at the time. Baltimore had great years ahead. So Rabbi Rice comes here, and he is thinking that he will become chief rabbi of the United States. One problem, the United States has no deep desire to have a chief rabbi. (laughs) So instead, he becomes a very influential figure, but he is troubled by the fact that people aren't sufficiently observant. They break the Sabbath. They eat non-kosher foods. They intermarry, he says, in the thousands, which is hard to believe because there are only 7,000 Jews in Baltimore. In any case, he decides to give up, form his own smaller Orthodox congregation, and leave this one to the next generation, which is still very traditional in its beliefs. I hesitate to use the word orthodox because orthodoxy doesn't yet exist as the modern orthodox movement. Before he tells me about the next era of the Lloyd Street Synagogue's history and its second leader, Rabbi Eloa, Marvin climbs up the stairs to the bima, a raised platform in the center of the room used for Torah reading. Let me go where I feel more comfortable. So go up onto the platform. So, from this bima in 1861, Rabbi Illoway is asked to make remarks on a national day of fasting. Uh, this was an idea by one of our least effective presidents, President Buchanan, that all the churches and synagogues in the nation should pray for a prohibition of civil war. Spoiler alert, those prayers didn't work. He gets up here and he says, who can blame our brethren of the South for wanting to avoid the cruel despotism imposed upon them? So he makes this long speech that is pro-slavery. Across the street at a second congregation formed by people who deserted this one for a more reform background, there is a rabbi by the name of David Einhorn. And Rabbi Einhorn says, who is this man who gets up in the morning and thanks God for his deliverance from Egypt? and in the evening condoned slavery from the highest pulpit. So there was a little civil war here on Baltimore Street between two halves of the Jewish community, and that actually had very significant consequences for this congregation. What happened was that during the Civil War, the leadership, lay leadership of the congregation, lost its authority. The president of the congregation was arrested, for allegedly selling uniforms to the Confederacy and was sent to prison in upstate New York. The vice president had his children more or less shooting at one another, and that sort of was a distraction. And (laughs) so, so in the end, they lost authority, and you see their names disappear from the minutes of the congregation. The people who take over have some different ideas. Among these ideas is, well, maybe with men away at war, we should have women in the choir. This doesn't pass in 1865 or in the next few years, but in 1870, that resolution passes. And now the congregation, this congregation, is divided. The vice president, having recovered from the Civil War, says, wait a second, I want this to be run the way it used to be run. And he goes to court to try to challenge the uh, leadership of the congregation. He fails to succeed. And uh, at that point, he takes half the congregation 
walks down to the other end of the block and acquires the property and builds another synagogue that's a few feet taller than this synagogue. Back in the Lloyd Street Synagogue, shorter by a few feet than its more traditional neighbor, the shift towards reform practices like seating men and women together continues. But that's not all that's changing at the time. The German-Jewish community that built the synagogue, the Baltimore Hebrew Congregation, is becoming more affluent. In the 1880s, they decide to move northwest in the city, becoming the first of several Jewish communities to leave the area for a more wealthy one once they are able. But it's not a Jewish congregation that occupies the newly vacant Lloyd Street Synagogue. Lithuanian Catholics living in the area had no church of their own and instead had to worship at the Polish Catholic Church, despite tensions between the two communities. Like the Baltimore Hebrew congregation before them, they wanted their own space to worship, and so the synagogue became St. John the Baptist Catholic Church from 1888 until 1905. The hole you see, the cutaway beyond the chandelier, the hole in the ceiling is where the steeple was. So they added a steeple. They added a steeple. They also put an altar directly under the Star of David that remained in the building. This is the oldest Star of David, as far as we can tell, on the exterior of a Jewish building, for the fir- a Jewish synagogue. For the first time, people felt confident enough of their position in America to put a Star of David on it. It, it has persisted since 1845. Stepping down from the bima, Marvin leads me down the stairs into the basement of the synagogue where, along with a historic mikvah for ritual bathing and a matzah oven, a small exhibit shares more of the building's history and the different congregations who made it their spiritual home. But before we hear the rest of this incredible story, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Grove History Consulting. As you may know, podcasts require a huge time investment. This show is no exception, and traveling to museums costs money. If I didn't have sponsors, I wouldn't be able to keep episodes coming out. That's why I'm so grateful to Grove History Consulting for helping keep museums and strange places going. Grove History Consulting empowers history organizations to demonstrate their relevance and define their impact through exhibition development, education strategy, and writing. Tim Grove has been described as one of the most engaging, innovative, and entrepreneurial leaders in our field. He has years of deep experience in public history work and is the co-founder of the History Relevance Initiative. I had the privilege to work with Tim on several history projects during my time at the American Association for State and Local History, and I can personally recommend Grove History Consulting to any history organization looking to develop more effective education programs and engage visitors with relevant exhibitions. Learn more about Grove History Consulting services and Tim's qualifications at grovehistoryconsulting.com. As I mentioned, in 1905, 
the Lithuanian congregation gains enough affluence to move northwest and is succeeded by a poor Russian Jewish congregation, which pays half as much for the building as did the Lithuanians, who paid half as much as did the original people who built the building. So as a real estate investment, the Lloyd Street Synagogue wasn't that great. <laughs> uh, but it still was an important and influential synagogue in the community, especially in the Orthodox community, both in Baltimore and beyond. But by 1959, the Jewish community here, even the Russian Jewish community, had mainly moved on to other parts of the city. And that meant that there weren't enough people to sustain the synagogue. You can see the awful condition that the building was in. So the city decided that it would be best if the building was simply torn down and replaced by a parking lot. But there was someone who objected. His name was Wilbur Hunter. As you can tell from the name, or might guess from the name, he's not Jewish. He was the director of the Peel Museum, the city museum at the time. And he said, you can't do this. This is one of the 12 most important buildings in Baltimore. And he helps organize the synagogue directors to create something called the Jewish Historical Society of Maryland, which through several iterations became the Jewish Museum of Maryland in order to preserve this building. That was its original purpose. Since its founding in 1960 as the Jewish Historical Society of Maryland, the museum's mission has extended beyond the preservation of the Lloyd Street Synagogue. In the late 1970s, a historian named Helen Solins began advocating for the restoration of the Benai Israel Synagogue. Benai Israel was built just down the street from the Lloyd Street Synagogue in the 1880s by Eastern European Jews, but had fallen into disrepair. Thanks to the organizing efforts of Solins, whose grandfather had studied the Talmud at Benai Israel in its heyday, a plan was created to not only renovate this younger synagogue, but to create a museum building for the Jewish Historical Society of Maryland, who would maintain both synagogues and create exhibits about Jewish history in the region. Today, Benai Israel is the spiritual home of a growing congregation, and the Jewish Museum of Maryland is an established community anchor with a large collection and exhibitions that tell the story of everyday people. We're now headed to Voices of Lombard Street, which picks up where our last story left off about the Jewish community and, when, and the folks who moved in here in the 1890s and afterwards. And yes, this is very cold. That's in part because right below this room is where the collections are held. We have 11,000 objects and uh, thousands of files of archival material and those need a temperature adjustment, and so the space above them is also quite chilly. Voices of Lombard Street, a century of change in East Baltimore, is a permanent exhibition organized into various scenes of everyday life from the days when East Lombard Street, only a few blocks from the museum, was a bustling market. This neighborhood was the center of Jewish life in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and people from many different backgrounds, including many immigrants, worked in the shops and stalls of the Market Street. As soon as you enter the exhibit, you hear the many sounds and voices of the busy street coming from speakers throughout the gallery. The first room we enter gives us a glimpse into a family home with life-size historical photos of family members, quotes from Lombard Street residents on the wall, and a real bathtub occupied by a picture of a fish. The exhibit has material that relates to the lives of everyday people, which is really the heart 
of what this museum is all about, the lives of everyday Jewish Marylanders. Quotes on the wall highlight the voices of these everyday people, including one memory that explains the fish in the bathtub. My mom used to make gefilte fish every Friday. She would go down to the fish market, which wasn't too far, just past the Jones Falls. And she'd buy fish and bring it home, and they would be swimming. And because the fish occupied the tub, God forbid we should bother the fish, we had to go to the public facility where they had showers. Her gefilte fish was absolutely out of this world. So Lombard Street is known for its row houses, uh, which typically had on the lower level a some type of small factory shop and on the upper level uh, residences. And the factory floors were dominated in the turn of the 20th century by clothing shops. And these were the sweatshops of the era Typically, they had German-Jewish ownership and Russian-Jewish workers. This section of the exhibit depicts the types of conditions under which people worked uh, in the 1890s. Then we talk about the fact that the neighborhood was never exclusively Jewish. The original Jonestown actually had Little Italy as a part of it uh, before it became a distinctive neighborhood. So people were in close proximity to each other. Uh, We also feature in this area of the exhibit uh, a special treat for kids, which is the outhouse, uh, (laughs) since this was one of the last areas of the city to get plumbing. As we move through the exhibit, we see Lombard Street changing. Marvin stops at a depiction of the many shops and their owners in the mid-1900s. And this depicts the Lombard Street that people in my generation would remember. This is Lombard Street as a commercial boulevard, small merchants from one end of the street to the other. And it's where you came if you wanted really fresh chicken. Mr. Uh, Yankolov would dispatch the chicken right in front of you. And uh, we depict Mr. Yankolov over there. Uh, It's also where uh, Tulkov started making horseradish here. And so it had not only a distinctive look, but a distinctive odor. Uh, And... It is a very warm memory for many people coming down to Lombard Street. And we mentioned some of the other types of businesses that were here, Hendler's Ice Cream. The Yiddish theater was performed in this area. Also, uh, it was the original home of the Jewish Education Alliance, which today we know as the JCC. And it was a lot about uh, people who had just come off the boat learning how to assimilate into American society. This is also where we make our pan to Harry Atman and Atman's Deli, the oldest institution still existing in the neighborhood, now over a hundred years old. Still makes great corned beef. (laughs) I can tell you from personal experience. getting a tour of the museum's new exhibit on Harry Houdini, I wanted to understand how the Jewish Museum of Maryland fits into this historic neighborhood's present. 
and future, and how they fit into the larger Jewish community. We are an anchor institution in Jonestown. Uh, we are a part of the Jonestown Planning Council and Historic Jonestown, Inc., and we have helped develop a community visioning process here. There's no successful Jewish Museum of Maryland without a successful Jonestown, just as there's no successful Baltimore region without a successful Baltimore city. So we have been very much a part of that effort. In terms of the Jewish community, we are a front door for people. Many people who are not tightly affiliated, they don't belong to a synagogue, they don't have other types of ties to Jewish life, for a $10 ticket, they become a part of the Jewish experience. And that's an important part of what we are. We say that we connect the Jewish community to its roots and everyone else, visitor and uh, resident alike, to the Jewish experience. Because, of course, you don't have to be Jewish to come to the Jewish Museum of Maryland. And now, as promised, the story of Harry Houdini, one of the most famous Jewish people that no one knows is Jewish. So one of our special features is our changing exhibit gallery. And every three to six months, there's something new here. And this one is uh, one of my favorites, Inescapable, The Life and Legacy of Harry Houdini. You may be wondering, what is this doing here? First of all, I have to explain that Harry Houdini is the son of a rabbi. And most people are, even people who know the name Houdini well, are not aware of that. But what does Harry Houdini, the great escape artist, have to do with Maryland? Marvin points me to a black and white photo, blown up to fill the wall in front of us. It's a photo of Charles Street in Baltimore, absolutely packed with people. You can't see Houdini in the photo. What you see are the 50,000 people looking at Houdini. If you think about it, I first saw this photo. It was about the size of a 3 by 5 card. And now you've got it blown up to the whole wall. Right. And you see the detail in the photo that you couldn't see before. And you wonder, how did 50,000 people in 1916 even assemble on Charles Street, given that there are no easy uh, mass transit vehicles or few streetcars that are completely locked in this traffic. But it's not clear how all these people arrived. And you also notice that there are people doing things far more dangerous than Houdini is doing. They're standing on the ledge to watch Houdini. (laughs) He at least has ropes around him. Over 27 years, Houdini performed almost 100 shows in Maryland. But it was another magician's performance that sparked the idea for this exhibit. It's here because of an unusual set of circumstances. We had a a gap in our calendar for this summer, and I ended up at Artscape last July, and I'm sitting there uh, trying to get out of the heat, and I escape into one of the theater spaces that's there, and I'd be willing to see anything in that theater space. And what shows up is a magician by the name of David London, and I'm sitting there sweating, thinking about what am I going to do next summer, and suddenly the thought goes through my head. I remember from my American Studies class that Harry Houdini was the son of a rabbi. And this man standing in front of me looks like he might be an interesting candidate to be a guest curator. And so on a whim, I write to him and say, have you ever thought about doing an exhibit on Harry Houdini? And he writes back and says, 
Well, I gave my bar mitzvah speech on Jews and magic. So yes, I have. He uh, did this as a labor of love, and it is just wonderful. Because he was, of course, already connected with the Society of American Magicians, which gave him access to all the collectors who have in their basement little pieces of Houdini memorabilia. And so as he went around the country doing his act, he would stop by these small mu museums, I put the, in air quotes, and would try to persuade them that they should share with us a few pieces that they had. And eventually the few pieces became an entire exhibit. Well, Harry Houdini was the, perhaps the most famous man of his time. It's certainly the most famous celebrity of his time. And most exhibits that have talked about Houdini, and there have been several, there are about 150 biographies, two movies and uh, documentaries, but most of it focuses on the period in which he is Harry Houdini, the great success. Our exhibit's divided in two. The first half is his first 26 years of life, where he is Eric Weiss, the struggling person who tries to transform himself into Harry Houdini, which is his greatest trick of all. And the second 26 years are represented in the second half of the exhibit. So it gives a little more balance to the story and tells you that he did not become Houdini overnight. Eric Weiss is born. Harry Houdini is invented. One of the challenges that David faced in putting together the exhibit was that uh, Harry Houdini tells many stories about himself, and only some of them are true. Uh, he was a, you know, a master uh, marketer. But with the help of some other researchers, including David Saltman, who was here last week speaking, he got to some interesting facts. We start in Budapest, which is where Harry is born. Like Marvin points out, our leading man becomes Harry Houdini. But he's born as Eric Weiss in 1874. At age four, he comes to the United States. His father gets a job as the first rabbi in Appleton, Wisconsin. Fun fact, about 100 years after the Weiss family moves to Appleton, my mom's family moves to the same town where she would spend her high school years before leaving to go to college in Milwaukee. Shout out to my mom, who is not a magician, but who always listens to my podcast episodes. Rabbi Weiss does okay for about four years, and then the congregation decides that they have had enough of Rabbi Weiss, and they break their contract with him. The whole congregation came from one town in Germany, and they hire their former uh, school teacher to be their rabbi. And so Rabbi Weiss suddenly finds himself out of work. He heads to Milwaukee, and those are the darkest years of Harry's life uh, because there is such privation in Milwaukee. According again to Mr. Saltman, these are the years that the family lives in a stable. But Harry runs away from home at age 12. We have the note, a uh, copy of the note that uh, Harry sends to his mom. Your truant son, Eric Weiss. Uh, this is one of the early contacts he has with the circus and begins in, with, in Milwaukee and on his escape afterwards to uh, think about performing. Uh, his first formal performance comes when he reunites with his father in New York. He goes to the Young Men's Hebrew Association where he is a, a popular athlete and he uh, does a show as Eric the Prince of the Air and that's his first magic performance. At some point, he decides that he and his friend Jacob Hyman are going to form an act, which they name after a famous 19th century magician, uh, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. 
and somebody convinces Harry that if he adds an I to something in French, it means like partisan of, something like that. And so he calls the act the Brothers Houdini. They have a great trick called metamorphosis, which we allow visitors to try to repeat in some form, which is that he and his partner switch places. One is in, locked in the trunk and one is standing on top, and they raise a curtain and they reverse position. When they perform in Coney Island, it's where the Houdini brothers, who are not brothers, meet the Flora sisters, who are not sisters. And <laughs> Harry falls in love with one of them, Beatrice, who he becomes his wife, Bess. And Bess Houdini, is, uh, for the rest of his life, will be his partner. He comments that Bess fits into the trunk a whole lot better than Jacob does, and so she becomes part of the act. In the 1890s, Harry tries everything in the entertainment business to keep himself alive. This is about the period where he worked with Welsh Brothers Circus. You notice a small, thin diary is Harry Houdini's diary wow. of his travels with the circus, and we've turned it to the page for his first trip to Maryland. And I have to tell you, things did not work out so well. So you see, a, you know, September 22nd, arrive Cumberland, and then it goes through and then says, rained hard, no dinner. Ooh. So he was literally starving on his first trip to Aww. Maryland. Uh, but he tried, uh, he was, some people called him uh, the nickname Dime Museum Harry because he performed at Dime Museum's the lowest form of entertainment in this period. He was also a snake oil salesman in medicine shows. He went to the 1893 World's Fair, and he had variable luck as in vaudeville until he met a man by the name of Martin Beck. Martin Beck says, basically, Harry, as a magician, you're one of a thousand. But as a handcuff artist, you're one of a kind. And he persuades Harry that he should focus on his escapes rather than on his magic. And that turns out to change Harry Houdini's whole fortune. He will bring magic back into his act later on, but his claim to fame, literally, in the period of the early 1900s, is his work as, as an escape artist. In terms of escapes, we managed to have quite a wide collection. Wow, look at all that stuff. That's all. And picks and locks, some of which are monogrammed with an H in the middle of the key for Houdini. And somebody managed to save a bobby pin that they claimed Houdini used as a, a, an escape lock. Uh, the, the large crowbar is part of how he got out of the crates that when he would get dropped in the river, uh, locked in handcuffs in a crate, he did need a crowbar to lift out the, the wood on the other side. Wow, that's a great collection of tools. And we illustrate, one of his escapes is from a milk can. We illustrate what it took just to crouch into the milk can. Not everyone can do this. And certainly I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that, how fun. And milk this is the only known recording of Harry Houdini's voice. Ladies and gentlemen, in introducing my original invention, the water torture cell, although there is nothing supernatural about it, I am willing to forfeit the sum of $1,000 to anyone who can prove that it is possible to obtain air inside of the torture cell when I'm locked up in it in the regulation manner 
It says, ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing my original invention, the water torture cell. And we have an original Harry Houdini straitjacket on display, as well as many of the posters used in his challenges. Harry Houdini, as I said, was a master publicist. First of all, he always did his uh, hanging out of a building trick, the one where he escapes from a straitjacket upside down, hanging out of a building. He did that either in front of or across from the city's biggest newspaper, <laughs> uh, whatever city he was in. The other trick of his was these challenges, which look like they are uh, spontaneous. Both he and his confederates would write letters saying, please challenge Harry Houdini to break out of your jail or to uh, break out of your beer bottle or whatever it was that they wanted him to break out of. And uh, then they would respond. We know that in part because a Baltimore beer company writes a letter back to Harry that says, due to the numerous requests we received, we are challenging you to break out of our beer barrel. <laughs> That's awesome. That must have been one of the most fun challenges since I assume the beer barrel was filled with beer. <laughs> then we have aspects of Houdini that aren't as well known. Houdini was in movies and was a silent film star and even started his own film studio where he unfortunately lost a lot of his money on trying to patent some film techniques. He did have several patents that were successful. And it's through patents that the museum discovered a new connection between Houdini and Maryland. On opening night, the Secretary of State of Maryland showed up with a folio under his arm. And I was kind of surprised. And he said, well, my grandfather was Houdini's patent attorney, and I have the correspondence. I wish I had known this three months ago when we started to put together the exhibit, but it was wonderful. This is one of his movie posters. It supposedly is the first time a robot is shown in the movies. And I would have you notice Harry's forehead and have you think about whether there's another Harry who might have been based on this. Oh, there's a, a big, uh, a long scar across his forehead. shaped scar. The movie is The Master Mystery. And the poster shows Harry Houdini with a large diagonal scar across his forehead, a la Harry Potter. I did a bit of digging online to see if anyone had made this connection before, and all I turned up was a fan theory by blogger Sweet Peas and Bees, pointing out that Harry Houdini, like Harry Potter, is considered one of the greatest magicians of all time, and that he died on the same day that Harry Potter's parents are killed by Voldemort, October 31st. In 2014, when someone racist on Twitter said there were no Jews at Hogwarts, J.K. Rowling replied, Anthony Goldstein, Ravenclaw, Jewish wizard. So maybe I'll tweet at Rowling and see if she confirms or denies that this uncanny Harry Houdini-Harry Potter connection is intentional. Harry Houdini obviously didn't have any real magical powers, but that didn't stop a giant among British writers from telling Harry that he was a wizard. By 1920, Houdini was known throughout the world and, among other things, was a, an author. And his most recent book was one that he wanted to share with the elites of Britain because he thought that they would help him promote the book. So he writes to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, famous for Sherlock Holmes, and they strike up at least a short-term friendship. Conan Doyle becomes convinced that Harry is actually a uh, wizard in real life and that uh, he's able to have special spiritual powers because Conan Doyle, especially after World War I, is a committed spiritualist. 
Like so many people, he lost people dear to him during the war, his brother, his son, and he sincerely believes that he can reach across the veil, as they put it in those days, and communicate with his uh, lost relatives. And so there is a, a tremendous increase in the number of mediums in the United States right after World War I for this reason. And Conan Doyle comes back and offers Houdini a chance to uh, have a seance with his wife in order to contact Houdini's mother. Remember how attached he was to his mother. So she is an automatic writer, meaning that the spirits move her arm, and she, uh, sort of a giant Ouija board, she writes out what his mother's message is. And Houdini comes out pale, and Conan Doyle thinks that he's convinced that this is true. Instead, what Houdini is thinking is, how do I break it to Conan Doyle that this can't possibly be true? First of all, the first thing she did was create a large cross, which would definitely not be his mother's first preference. And as then, a Jewish woman, as yeah. As a Jewish woman. And then after that, everything is written in perfect English. And he said, my mother could barely speak English, so unless she took lessons in the world beyond, this isn't possible. So he decides that other people are being defrauded. And so having spent his whole life fooling people, he says, you know, it's one thing to pay to be fooled, and another thing to be fooled into pain. He decides to take on mediums as a crusade. He spends the next three or four years of his life uh, debunking all sorts of spiritualists. And it, in fact, becomes part of his act. Literally, there's a poster that says that his first act is magic and illusions, his second act is escapes, and his third act is fraud mediums exposed, which he would do on stage. He had a, a, an early version of a slideshow called The Lantern Show that he would put on and show how the spirit photos were faked. And we, in fact, allow visitors to make their own spirit photo in the exhibit where they can see exactly how it was faked. Uh, if you take your picture here with a flash, uh, you will find that Houdini has joined you in the picture. Um, he also uh, went around in disguise, and w along with his confederates, who like um, Madame uh, Mackenberg, uh, who would come into seances, and his tagline was, I am Houdini and you are a fraud. He'd pull off the disguise and have that dramatic moment. He usually tried to bring a reporter with him, uh, sometimes a policeman as well, <laughs> just to short-circuit the process. Uh, he testified in the anti-fortune-telling bill before Congress. It's a fascinating chapter in his life. He is accused of being against fortune-tellers because he's Jewish. Mm. And uh, so when I entered this exhibit, I asked myself, did anyone actually know in his own lifetime that Houdini was Jewish? And the answer is most definitely yes. Not always for good reasons, but they did. Then the last sections of the exhibit deal first with Houdini's death, he is punched in the stomach in Montreal and uh, then continues to perform for four days before going to a doctor way too late in Detroit. And he dies on Halloween, 1926. That is made for legend. Uh, he supposedly sent Beths an uh, envelope with the message that he would deliver if he could come back from the grave and talk to her. And so Bess, for 10 years, held seances to see if she could communicate with Houdini. Uh, she was not successful. And uh, yet the seances have gone on now for 90 years, first by Houdini's brother and then his 
uh, other relatives along the way. And the 91st seance, which is this Halloween, will be held here. Did Houdini make himself known at the 91st seance held in the Jewish Museum of Maryland? No, of course not. I like to think that even if Houdini did get to the other side and realize he could come back, he probably would have stayed there just to stick it to the fraudulent spiritualists that he campaigned against during his life. If we can't learn what the afterlife is from the Houdini seance at the museum, we can learn something about how museums fit into the cultural fabric of our communities. They are places where history comes alive through storytelling and creative exhibit design. They are places where the physical fragments of a life, like the Houdini memorabilia collected from magicians across the country, can occupy a space of reflection and curiosity, a space where we can gather to try and make contact with the lives that came before us. And that's what the Jewish Museum of Maryland is doing more broadly as well. They are a point of connection where anyone can come to find out more about the rich cultural and spiritual heritage of Maryland's Jewish communities. Through sacred historical spaces like the Lloyd Street Synagogue and the first person stories of everyday people in the Voices of Lombard Street exhibit, you, the visitor, can partially lift the veil between the present and the past and get to know the people that came before you. Perhaps along the way, you'll also learn something profound about yourself. Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Maryland's museums. Today's episode was sponsored by Grove History Consulting. If you enjoy museums and strange places, please help me keep it going by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend. The featured songs in this episode are by Seth Kibble, an award-winning instrumentalist in the Washington-Baltimore area who records independently and with his klezmer band, the Alexandria Kleztet. Klezmer, in case you don't know, is a musical tradition of the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe. Find more of Seth Kibble's music, information on the topics discussed in this episode, and pictures of the Jewish Museum of Maryland on my website, hhethman.com. H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com. Interested in starting a podcast at your organization? Check out my new book, Your Museum Needs a Podcast, a step-by-step guide to podcasting on a budget for museums, history organizations, and cultural nonprofits. Your Museum Needs a Podcast is available on Amazon as an ebook, paperback, and audible audiobook.